0: Let's turn together now to 2 Thessalonians, chapter 3, as we finish off, uh, finish together this book that we've been in for the last month, month and a half. 2 Thessalonians, chapter 3. Picking up where Josh left off last week, verse 6 through the end. Again, please pay attention to the reading of God's word. Now we command you, brothers It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. You have not left us in the dark to know who you are, to know the way of salvation, to know how we ought to honor and glorify you and serve our neighbor, that you in your wisdom have given us a word that is sufficient for us. A sufficient, it's sufficient to guide us in the ways of godliness and in salvation. So help us this morning to be attentive to your word, to pay attention to what you say. And by your spirit, we ask that your word would pierce into our hearts, that it would reveal our sin Draw us to Christ and instruct us in godliness. Amen. You may be seated. This coming week, Lexi and I are taking Josh and Lindsay on a short backpacking trip up at the Pictured Rocks National Lakeshore up in the Upper Peninsula. Josh has done a backpacking trip before. Uh, But Lindsay has not, this is her first one. We're gonna be doing a 40 mile stretch along the shore of Lake Superior. We're gonna be living for just a few days off of pretty much only what we can carry on our backs and hopefully along with some mushrooms that I can harvest along the way. And if Josh and I have any fishing skill, uh, either some rainbow trout or coho salmon that are swimming up the rivers this time of year. But one of the joys of backpacking is that it forces you to simplify. It forces you really to live off of what you can carry. And as you pack for any backpacking trip, your goal is to keep your backpack as light as you possibly can, while also having everything you need. And that's a tough tightrope to walk, wanting to be as light as you can, but making sure that you don't forget something that you absolutely need. So a regular question is: you're packing your bag, something uh, we're doing with the Golaksins tonight, the regular question is, do I really need this? Do I really need this? Do I really need three pairs of socks? Or can I get away with two pairs of socks? Uh, how much food do I really need to bring? And In my case, how many fishing poles do I actually need to strap to this backpack for this few-day hiking trip? What do, I, what do I really need on this trip? I think in our often just extravagant and complicated lives these days, it can be good for us, a good habit sometimes to ask, what do I really need? What do I really need? It's tempting, I think, to think that we couldn't possibly live without a television, couldn't possibly live without a computer, couldn't possibly live without a telephone, which really just is a, 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 a it's, it's a computer and a TV and like a hundred other things now, like, all smashed into one little device, right? How could we live without this phone? How could we live without air conditioning or a car or running water in our house or a laundry uh, washer and dryer? Now, those things, right, are really nice. I, I wouldn't personally buy a house if it didn't have a washer and a dryer in it, or at least I would install one. But backpacking reminds you of the few things that you absolutely actually need to live. You need clean water, you need food, and shelter, and obviously air, but you don't have to pack for that. It's just around you. You need clean water, food, and shelter. So we pack a water filter, we pack food, we pack a tent, and we pack, pack clothes. Now, we have to ask this question for the church as well. What things are absolutely essential for the church's health and for the church's survival? What things do we actually Need, could the church survive without a building? Could the church survive without a band, without programs, without a nursery, without a website? Now, all of those things done well, used well, can serve the church, right? They serve the church, they're a benefit to the church, but none of those things are essential in the true meaning of the word essential. During the Protestant Reformation, it became necessary for the church and for theologians to engage with the question, what is essential to the existence of the church? Without what things does the church cease to exist? The Belgic Confession of Faith, written by Guido de Bray in 1559, it's not our confession for this church, but it still serves as the confession of faith for many Reformed churches around the world. I love the Belgic Confession, find it very helpful. One of the things it does well is it gives a clear answer to this question. What is essential to the existence of the church? And it answers by giving three marks of the true church. The Belgic Confession says, the marks by which the true church is known are these if the pure doctrine of the gospel is preached therein, so the preaching of the word, preaching of the gospel, if she maintains the pure administration of the sacraments as instituted by Christ, so baptism and the Lord's Supper, and if church discipline is exercised in punishing of sin. So in essence, the church must preach the gospel, must preach the word, must administer the sacraments and exercise church discipline. Now, as you think about those three things, perhaps the one that's surprising to you is that church discipline made that list, at least in the Belgic Confession, and I agree with them. Why is church discipline on that list? Well, the absence of church discipline in a church most likely will not kill a church as fast as the absence of the preaching of the word of God. It won't kill the church as fast as the absence of the sacraments, but it will eventually kill a church. A simple survival tip, if you are ever trying to survive in extreme conditions, these aren't normal conditions, in extreme conditions, a human can survive three minutes without air, three hours without shelter, three days without food, and three weeks, uh, three days without water, and three weeks without food. Okay, so four simple threes, three minutes without air, 3 hours without shelter, 3 days without water, 3 weeks without food. So all of those things if you don't have them will kill you, but some of them will kill you faster than other things. And I think that goes for the things that are essential in the church as well. But church discipline is ultimately necessary because we're all sinners. And I know that is true. Sorry. We are all sinners. We're ho- we're hopefully redeemed sinners. Reconciled, forgiven sinners, sinners that are in the process of being sanctified, but we are all sinners nonetheless. And until glory, life in the church, is an area of life that's going to be messy, it's going to be hard. And that's exactly what we see in our passage today. Sometimes it's easy, I think, to romanticize the early church. If only we could get back to the first century, we would have no problems. The church would be the way that it's supposed to be. But just read Paul's letters. 2 Thessalonians is likely uh, one of the very first letters written in the entire New Testament. And already we have pictures of problems in the church, false teaching, sin, corrupting the church. So the big idea of this passage, which applies to that church then and applies to us now is we're still just as messed up as ever. The big idea is in light of sin's disruptive impact on the church, we must pursue three things. In light of sin's disruptive impact on the church, we must pursue three things. The first, selfless obedience. Second, enduring service. And third, restorative discipline. Selfless obedience, enduring service, and restorative discipline. So let's dive in to the passage this morning. Look with me at the beginning of our passage in verse 6. Paul writes, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. So notice the issue that he's dealing with. We did this just a couple of weeks ago, and he's dealing with false teachers, right? We had to make note of the issue here. Let's make note of the issue in this text. What's the problem? The problem is that some in the church were walking in idleness. The word here that's translated idleness carries more than just the idea of being lazy. It's not just that people were lying around not doing anything. That word carries the idea of being undisciplined or unruly. It was sometimes used in the Greek language to describe soldiers who were insubordinate. Soldiers who brought chaos to the ranks, who disobeyed their commanding officers, showed a general lack of respect for those who were above them. You can see how that unruly type of attitude, unwilling to submit to those who are above you, would cause huge problems in army ranks and military ranks, and it creates the same exact sort of disturbance in the church. And the way that this unruliness manifested itself then in this church was through the issue of idleness, which we see through the rest of the passage. But the core issue, again, wasn't just idleness itself, but it was a lack of obedience to the tradition that had been handed down, a lack of submission to Paul and the apostles. That's what Paul himself points out at the end of that first verse. He says they're walking in idleness, Notice how he contrasts this on the other side, and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. Okay, so it wasn't just idleness, it's that they were disobeying. They weren't willing to submit their lives and have their lives be in accord with the tradition that the apostles had handed down to the church. So then Paul reminds them of the ways that he and his companions had handed down that tradition. He wants to spark in their memory what he had taught them. And we see that he taught the church in two different ways. First, he taught through example, and second, he taught through word. We see this in verses 7 through 11. First, in verses 7 through 9, we see that Paul taught the church and led the church by his example for them. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us. And the Greek word there, mimeomai, it's where we get mimic. So you know how you ought to mimic us. Like watch what I do, do what I do. All right, you know how you ought to imitate us. Use that word later, so pay attention to that. Because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, all right, so he's not saying pastors, apostles, those who give their lives to the ministry of the gospel don't have any right to be paid, okay? Right, we need to be clear on that. And I'm not just saying that selfishly because you pay me. Jesus himself teaches in Luke 10 that the laborer deserves his wages. And he taught that about his disciples that he was sending out to do gospel ministry, okay? So we see as, as, as I was going along, it was not because we do not have that right, but why? Why did Paul... Work hard, why did he uh, not accept anything from this church? He says, But to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. Again, the purpose here was to be an example. Christian leaders of any sort, whether a pastor, or an elder, uh, someone working in college ministry, or a parent, whatever role you might find yourself in don't underplay the importance of imitation in discipleship of saying as i follow after christ as i imitate christ imitate me paul said that multiple times in first corinthians and throughout his letters we are to imitate those who are spiritual leaders for us which means spiritual leaders live a life of godliness live a life where you are confident to say i'm not perfect right and so I lead in repentance as much as anything else, but, but follow after me as I follow after Christ. It's not just what you say that matters, but what you do, All right, People are watching. And what we desire is to have our words and our actions go together. Have you ever played the game Simon Says? Yes, kids? Is that still played by young folk these days? Good, it's a good game. Pastor Dan up at Emmaus Road is the expert at leading the game of Simon Says. If you've ever been to a men's retreat, any of you guys, we often begin the men's retreat with Pastor Dan doing a game of Simon Says. And he only has two commands and two actions in the entire game. He's not very creative. His only two commands are put your hands up, or sorry, Simon Says, put your hands up, because you only obey if they say, say Simon Says, right? And Simon Says, put your hands down. And he does just variations of Simon Says, put your hands up, put your hands down simon says put your hands down but one of the best ways he tricks you is he often mismatches his actions with the words that he's telling you to do and he does it about half the time so you can't really get into a pattern of trying to figure out what he's doing he'll say simon says put your hands up okay simon says put your hands up and everybody follows his actions but they don't follow his words and so the trick in simon says for the leader of simon says is to not have your words and your actions match, right? And it provides and provokes confusion, right? And so leaders in the church, our goal is to do the opposite of Simon Says. Our goal is not to promote confusion in the church, but to have a substance of unity between our words and our actions. It's that type of integrity that any Christian leader ought to pursue. And that's what we see with Paul. He gives Example first, follow my example, and then he reminds them of his words, his words that matched his actions in verses 10 through 11. They went together, word and action. What was his word to them? Verses 10 and 11. For when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some of you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. What was Paul's word to them? The famous, well known phrase if anyone is not willing to work, let him, not, let him not eat. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Now, it's really important for us as a church, as Christians, to see that this is not about people who are unable to work. There's a very important word in that phrase. It's not saying if someone through injury, or mental illness, or whatever it is, is prevented from working, even though they may desire to work, then don't don't support those people. No, it's not saying that. It's saying specifically, if anyone is not willing to work, right? If someone has the ability to, but they say, I don't want to work, I refuse to work, I just want to do my own thing, right? Then the church is to avoid giving their support to that person that's a very important principle in mercy ministry and it's very hard to apply it's hard to know it's really hard to know is, is this person needing help because they are just sinfully not support, supporting themselves because they're unwilling to work or is there other things going on it's often really tricky because we're all sinners right and there's much that's going on in our heads and our hearts but this is a principle we need to take seriously as a church we think about where does our money go? We want to make sure our money and our and our hospitality and our food are going to those that really need it, to the people that are in most need of those things, and to not then on the other hand enable people who are just abusing the generosity of others. And that's what we saw here. People who were willing to take, 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 but never, never give, never provide, never help do anything in the church. They were just willing to selfishly take of the generosity of other people. And that's who Paul is dealing with here. And then notice that he also says they're not busy at work, they're busy bodies. And this is one one case where I think the ESV nails the translation. There's a play on word in the Greek, and they show that same, a similar play on the word in English, which is so hard to capture. Busy at work, not busy at work, but busy bodies. They're busy at something, but they're not busy at being productive. They're not busy at, at helping. They're not busy at doing anything. They're busying themselves with other people's business, meddling in other affairs, getting in the way. Lexi and I were at Culver's this last week. It was really busy as Culver's often is. So things were going really slow. And we went inside to order because the drive through line was incredibly long. We were only getting a, a scoop of custard of that lemon ice stuff. So we go inside to order quickly. And there, of course, all the workers are frantically stuffing bags and sending them out there's one young man who is standing there next to one of the registers, kind of leaning against it. And he's just talking with other coworkers. He's trying to like crack jokes and, and just like say things, get in conversations with them. And they're all just like, okay, guy, like, come on. And they're, they're packing these bags. And so, right, he's not just like not working. It's worse than the fact that he's just being idle while he should be helping. It's the fact that he is meddling in other people's work, getting in the way right? Stepping on people's toes. And isn't that often the case, right? When when someone is unwilling to actually help, they do more harm than just not being there. They get in the way, they meddle, they're busy bodies, right? So Paul discourages that. He says, no, be busy at work. His command is strong and is clear. If you aren't willing to work, then you shouldn't eat. That's hard. That's what Paul says. Now you can... Again, primarily, you can apply this in other areas of life, but the primary uh, context is the church helping to support people. And in the middle of this situation where some people are being idle and unruly, undisciplined, insubordinate, whatever you want to call it, they are disrupting the church through their lives. And Paul then, in response, gives three main exhortations, three commands to the church. We're going to look at those three exhortations to bring us back around to our big idea. Our big idea is in light of sin's disruptive impact on the church, which we've just looked at through their unruliness, being idle, In light of sin's disruptive impact on the church. What are we to do? We must pursue selfless obedience, enduring service, and restorative discipline. Again, selfless obedience, enduring service, and restorative discipline. Those will be our three applications this morning. So first, he says, pursue selfless obedience. Look at verse 12 with me here. In verse 12, Paul directly addresses those people who were walking in idleness. He commands them, now to such persons, we command, it's a really strong word. He's not just saying like, this is a suggestion to you, right? We command and we encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly quietly, and to earn their own living. Paul says to them, obey. Do what we've shown you to do by example. Do what we've told you to do by word. Obey our example and our word and get to work. Work quietly. In other words, stop meddling with other people's affairs. Do your work. Do it well. Support yourself, right? So do your work. We need to see there's a Christian view of work. Work is a good thing. The toil and the hardship is a result of the fall. But God designed us to be productive, to be creative, to take the world that he has given us and to use it and mold it and and mend it and create beautiful things to serve other people. And we need to engage in that work. We We were made for it. He says work. Paul encourages them work and he says earn your own living as well in there one of the big issues as i've mentioned is that idle people are often willing to selfishly take from other people it's a very selfish way of life the idle people in thessalonica were again they were taking 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 from others abusing their generosity but never helping never giving never acting in a way they're like leeches Right? They're, just, they're just sucking off of other people's stuff and other people's time and generosity. And we need to not be like that. If you find yourself out of step with God's calling and design for you, then the call is to obey God, to stop living for yourself. Instead, to live for God's glory and the good of your neighbor and the good of your brother and sister. Instead of being selfish, be selfless in your obedience that's related to the second application, pursue enduring service, pursue enduring service. So look with me here to the next verse, verse 13. So verse 12, he, he was giving a command to those who are idle. Now he gives a command to the whole church. And he says, as for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. This is the mirror opposite of selfishly taking, taking, taking. Paul encourages them to persevere in the good work that they are doing in the church, in serving others. In this context, he's talking to those people who in the church were giving of their homes, of of their food, of their finances, of their time. They were giving it to other people, even people who were abusing those things. And although he says, make sure you're not giving those things to people who are not working, he says, don't stop being generous. Don't stop working hard. Don't stop serving others. Keep it up. Press on. I know it's messy. I know it's hard, but continue to serve. Paul, he knew how easy it would be to become disillusioned, become discouraged in serving others in the church. If you give your life to serve other people, then you're going to get burned at times. You're going to get used by people You're going to get discouraged by people. People aren't always easy to love. If you're honest, you're not always easy to love. In this fallen and sinful and messy world, you're going to get discouraged. And it's always a sad thing when you see someone who once had a passion for mercy ministry or counseling ministry or shepherding or gospel ministry, someone who has this great desire to serve others, but then gets burned and they lose their love for their work because of getting burned and discouraged and used. They, they see people walk away in their ministry. They see leaders fall from the faith. They see people being used and abused by others. But even then, Paul says, do not grow weary in doing good. Don't grow weary Now, I know of no other source of endurance in doing good, no other source of not growing weary in our selflessness than in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yes, we are sometimes burned by those we serve, and that is so hard. But let us remember Jesus who came to serve and to save. Let us remember that he came and he was killed by the people and for the people that he came to serve and save. In sin, we're those people. We're those people who disobey. We're those people who take God's grace and generosity to us for granted. We're those people who are often unruly, undisciplined, even idle. But we are those same people who have been served beyond comparison, without earning it, without deserving it, by the selfless love of our suffering savior, Jesus. As Paul wrote to another church, the church in Philippi, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. How can we do that, Paul? How can we be selfless and humble? How can we continue to serve and count other people's needs as more significant than ours? Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. So even as the Thessalonians were called to imitate or or mimic Paul, let us keep our eyes on Jesus and let us imitate him. Let us mimic him, the one who gave himself for us as we give of all that we have for the service of others and the glory of God. So pursue selfless obedience and enduring service. And lastly, Pursue restorative discipline. Pursue restorative discipline. This is where Paul turns in verses 14 and 15 to what I think is actually the main thrust of the entire passage. I believe that this whole passage is ultimately about the practice of church discipline. How should a church deal with someone who is stubbornly refusing to obey, with someone who is being disruptive to the church. What is the church to do? Well, he circles back around in verse 14 to where he started in verse 6. Keep away from that person. In 14, he says, have nothing to do with that person, the one who is being disruptive." I don't think in this passage he's quite yet talking about the practice of excommunication, which is removing someone ultimately from the church body, because he says in verse 15 to not treat this person as an enemy, but to treat them as a brother, warn them as a brother. So this person is still considered a brother, but he's warning the church against pursuing too intimate of a friendship with this person. Stay away from them. And your attitude and your relationship with them should be one of warning, not of being influenced. You need to, to warn them. But that's not where church discipline begins. It doesn't begin with separation. And I actually think this whole passage gives us an awesome picture of what church discipline is supposed to look like, where it starts and how it moves forward. First, we need to see that church discipline begins with faithful teaching. It doesn't begin with excommunication. It begins with the daily reading of God's word, with gathering together as the church reading God's word together, the preaching of God's word. This is church discipline at its very inception, at its very beginning, as the word of God confronts you in your sin, calls you out, calls you back to God in repentance of faith, instructs you in how you ought to live. It's the first stage of how discipline works in the church, just simply faithful teaching. The second step well, we see that, that with Paul, actually, sorry. We see Paul, the first thing that he does, he reminds them of his instruction, his teaching, right? His words to them, his example to them. That's the first place he goes. Remember my teaching, right? So that's the first step of church discipline. And then the second step is to admonish the wayward, to admonish or exhort someone who is walking away or walking in sin. Jesus talks about this in Matthew chapter 18. He talks about conflicts in the church and that first, individuals should bring up an offense to the individual. Like one-on-one, okay? Bring it up. Confront them about what happened gently, kindly, but honestly. Confront them in their sin. If they don't listen, he says bring a witness with you. So bring somebody else. If that doesn't work, and according to Jesus, lastly, you bring it to the church. You bring it to the elders. You bring it to the leaders so that it's dealt with at a church level. So we all have on one level, a responsibility in church discipline. We all have a responsibility to admonish one another. If you see your brother or your sister wandering away or wandering into something that's dangerous, or if your brother or sister sins against you, you have a responsibility, again, gently, kindly, not because you love nitpicking, you want to exaggerate or cause conflict, but because you want to warn them to go in and bring it to light with that person. We also see that Eventually, if someone refuses to pay attention, that it gets brought to the church and they're admonished by the leaders. And that's what we see Paul doing here in verse 12. He's saying, you know what I've told you to do. The teaching on this is clear, but you need to obey. He admonishes those people. He exhorts them, obey. That's what Paul gives us again in verse 12, an admonishment. And then the last step of church discipline is separation. That's where we see Paul eventually bringing this to in 14 and 15. This may begin as it does in this passage with simply having the church be encouraged to stay away from a wayward brother or sister. But eventually it leads to someone being suspended from the sacraments and eventually being excommunicated. That's hard. It's hard to talk about discipline. It's hard to talk about formal discipline and excommunication in the church. But I want to encourage you, I want to let you know that excommunication doesn't just happen because someone sins, because someone messes up. If that was the case, we would not have a church, right? Every single one of us would have already been excommunicated, including our leaders, and we'd have no church left, all right? So it's not just when somebody sins. We all sin. We all mess up. It only gets to that last stage when someone stubbornly refuses to listen to the warnings that are given to them. If someone knows what is right, I hear what you're saying, Pastor. I know what the Bible says on this. Okay, I, I get that. I just want to do what I want to do. I'm, I'm, I, know, I know it says not to do that. It says not to wander in there. I'm going to do it anyway, right? That's different than just, just ordinarily sinning and being called back. It's a stubbornness. Paul makes it very clear in verse 14 makes this principle clear. It's only if those idle brothers refuse to listen to Paul's admonition that they're to be separated from the church, right? He doesn't say just separate them because they're being idle. He says, if they're unwilling to listen, they need to be separated. It's also important then for us, lastly, to see the goals of church discipline that we see in this passage. There are goals. There's a reason that we do church discipline and it's not to be mean to people not to punish people. Uh, the PCA's Book of Church Order, a book that most of you will probably never read, a nice big blue binder about how we do everything, church discipline, worship, church government. It's great, good devotional material for sure. Um, I actually find that some of it is just fantastically helpful. I love the Book of Church Order, uh, particularly in the second section of the book. It deals with church discipline, and at the very beginning of that section, it deals with The very basics of church discipline. Why do we do church discipline in the church? And they give three reasons, three things that church discipline maintains or promotes. First, church discipline maintains the glory of God, right? That should be the standard answer for all things if you are a Reformed Christian. Why did we do this? Well, to glorify God first and foremost, right? We do that by removing Scandal from the church, the church that bears the name of Jesus. Church discipline removes scandal that God would be honored and glorified among his people and in our world. So it promotes the glory of God. Second, it serves the purity and the peace of the church. Serves the purity and the peace of the church by removing those who would lead the church astray. And this is likely one of the reasons Paul says, keep away, right? Keep away from these people. Don't let their disobedience infect you. We want to keep the church pure and and peaceful. And those people who are going to disrupt the church need to be dealt with. So the glory of God, the purity and peace of the church. And then the last one is that discipline serves to keep and reclaim disobedient sinners. Discipline serves to keep and to reclaim disobedient sinners. This is what Paul indicates at the very end of verse 14. When he says that this discipline is meant to make this person feel ashamed. Why? Why does Paul care that this discipline, that this separation will make this person feel ashamed? It's so that they feel the weight of their sin. He wants them to understand the damage that their sin is doing to themselves and to other people. To feel bad for that in a way that would draw them back to repentance. Repentance. It's grace towards God. Again, we say this all the time. It's grace when we feel conviction over our sin. And the purpose here is that church discipline would do that. It would promote their conviction over their actions, that they would be drawn back to Christ, that they'd be drawn back to the church. The goal of church discipline is not ultimately to punish someone. The goal is ultimately to draw them, to draw them back. The fancy language there is that church discipline isn't punitive. It is restorative. Church discipline serves to keep us, and that is exactly why church discipline is a benefit to Christians, right? We need to think about church discipline not as this merely this hard thing, a thing to be avoided, but as something that's good for us. It's a benefit. Our book of church order, this is the last time I'm quoting it here, says, all baptized persons being members of the church are subject to its discipline and... I love this, and entitled to the benefits thereof. Church discipline is a benefit to you. It's a benefit to your soul. It's a benefit to me, to our leaders. This is one of the reasons that churches need to take church, uh, church membership seriously, right? And Christians need to take church membership seriously. To avoid church membership where you submit yourself to the discipline of the church is to put yourself in serious spiritual danger. It's dangerous to put yourself away from the church and to isolate yourself, to keep yourself away from those people who can call you out in your sin. It's like a sheep who wanders out from the sheepfold at night, thinking that they can go it alone just fine. Except the fact that there are wolves. There are cliffs. You're gonna get lost. You're not meant to walk alone, but to walk together. So again, discipline is good, and it is like surgery, in that it hurts, right? I I hate surgery. I hate thinking about anything medical, which is hilarious because I married a nurse. I step into a hospital, I get nervous, you know, I feel I'm just like, I hate needles, I hate getting my blood drawn, all of that. Uh, I've honestly thought, right, if, if I had some, some disease that required surgery, would I, you know, make a pro con list, right? Can I live with this? Cause I just don't want surgery, right? Like I really don't want to undergo that. But at, w- at some point, right? Even someone who is super afraid of surgery will submit to, a sur- to surgery if it means saving their lives. And that is in a way what we call people to in submitting to church discipline. What are you willing to undergo for physical and for spiritual healing? What type of pain, are you willing to undergo, to fight off your sin and its effects in your lives? Discipline is not comfortable for the people who do it or the people who receive it, but it is good. It is good, it is a benefit, and it is safety and it is healing. Like I said, church discipline not only serves to keep and reclaim sinners, it also maintains the purity and the peace of the church. As I've said already, life in the church is messy. It's messy. People are sinners. I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. Sin brings disorder. But Christ desires peace for his people. And ultimately, Christ is the source of peace for his people. And that's where Paul ends this book. It's where he ends with this benediction. In the midst, remember all that's going on in this young Thessalonian church, in the midst of their persecution and affliction, in the midst of the false teachers who are disrupting their church. And in the midst of sin and disorder and unruly and idle people, Paul ends the book then by drawing them to the one source of peace, the one place where the peace of the church can ultimately be found. Verses 16 and eighteen through 18, Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. The Lord be with you all. He says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine the way that I write, and probably in his large Paul handwriting, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. It is our gracious Lord Jesus Christ and him alone that gives peace ultimately to his people. He is the one who gives peace with God, the one who restores us to him by canceling the record of the debt that stands against us by his death. He's the one who gives us peace by working in the ministry of his church to purify his people. And he is the one who gives and promises perfect peace and rest when he returns in victory to gather his people to himself. So this life is messy and hard. This life is full of sin and suffering. Let us look to Jesus. Let us look to the Lord of peace that we would live for him now by faith and that by faith, we would look forward to his return and the peace that he brings. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the warnings that we receive in your word, that you love us enough to call us out. You love us enough to have us hear things that hurt, but things that like the surgeon's scalpel cut and hurt, but heal. Father, we pray that we as a church would be faithful in church discipline, shepherding the flock, and as members of the church, uh, that we would submit to the government and the discipline of the church for our own good and our own benefit. Father, we praise you for the peace that we have with you through Jesus Christ, and that though this life is hard and this life is long that we look forward to the day when all is made new and your people are at peace and are at rest. Amen.